half given we had uh, we knew then we'd have an election on the 7th of May and therefore trying to say what a new government's policies would be by the 22nd of May was going to be a bit of a challenge um, actually less of a challenge than we thought because I think lots of us didn't think that we'd have a government uh, at this point but uh, because there would have been a hung parliament but actually we have a government but it is it, it has said quite clearly that it is a new government it's not a continuation of the coalition so um, we are expecting oh I've gone um, oh dear um, so we are expecting to have new policies um, oh yes it's just that right okay um, so actually all I can talk about today really is the evidence we're collecting to inform government policy and particularly for a spending review which um, is arguably started though not formally I think and um, so what a lot of what I'm talking today is a kind of prequel of things we're working on so that some of the stuff is quite draft and tentative um, I don't think specific numbers may change but the, we'll be working more on uh, fin uh, uh, interpreting it and finalizing it so the first thing we'll do is use it in spending review and then we would publish all the stuff later but that might take a while before we get there now here we go can I go forwards? Ah, yeah, I can. Hurrah! Right, okay. Uh, this is a uh, work in progress. This is something that Stephen Hill at Hefke has been working on um, to try and give a, more of a framework to all the work we do in Hefke on research and evaluation. All the heads of policy, and I'm just one of those, uh, do a lot. I mean, this is an incredibly important part of how we do policy development is to commission research and evaluation so Stephen Hill is trying to draw together some framework across the policy teams to help us talk more about the different approaches we we take and um, I think I stress here that therefore the work we do on our research and evaluation there's a very wide range of reasons we do research and evaluation only one of which is spending reviews but obviously at the moment a lot of what we're doing is about spending reviews so uh, I apologise in advance that what I'm going to talk about today, therefore, is very much at this moment how we're using evidence for spending review purposes, which tends to be very high, heavily economic. Obviously, the same research we use, we would also use for other purposes. So the aim is to first of all use things for spending reviews and then to publish all the work with also commentary on things that tell you more about evaluative and, you know, informed practice. So moving from narrowly spending review to broader policy into practice. So I mean, one of the, the issues, I guess, which were prompted by my speech and also by Ewart's is this whole question, what is the interplay between government policy and HE practice? Because how we allocate money is informed by government priorities and that affects what practice happens. But also universities have a whole stream of quite broad funds which they can use at their discretion. So there is not necessarily, I think, a one-to-one -one mapping between the practices that universities follow, which may flow out of broad income streams and narrowly how government sees the world. And I think that's particularly true when you come to economic <coughs> concepts we're going to talk about, like innovation and enterprise. This is Romef. I don't know if anyone knows Romef. I'm sure you it does. Romef, well, you don't. Oh, right. Romef is the prescribed approach for uh, policy evaluation, which is, in fact, the, is, uh, comes from something called the Green and Magenta books. Yes, you do know. The Green book is the Treasury's approach to policy appraisal and the magenta book is specifically what the the treasury's uh, guidance for policy evaluation yeah that i we didn't know much about it either um 
This is so. This is what this is the this is actually set out in very long documents the Treasury produces about how policy evaluation should occur. I have to say that um, obviously this has become this kind of thing is getting more important in government because as spending reviews are tough, they're all about cuts, not more money. More and more government departments need to get more expert at putting appraisal as forward to government because they know it's not about winning; it's it's also about losing. So there is a strong view across government that there has to be evidence has to be improved. And we're lucky. I was saying to uh, Europe, we're lucky in biz. A lot of the money we get for Hive, which I'm going to talk about today, is from biz research. And biz research actually luckily have directors. I was saying Rebecca Endine who's an economist originally, but also Jenny Dibden, I think, who was something like head of government social science. So biz research have very good policy people who themselves are analysts and researchers. And actually, they've said in terms of Rome F that although Hefke doesn't slavishly follow Rome F, we are considered to be actually quite good practice. And I think one of the keys for spending reviews is, uh, is this bit of the cycle. If I get this bit here, very important, is that you use, you, you, when you're using money, you evaluate and that feeds back into your spending review cycle. So you're not just doing stuff and then going, well, that was interesting. You actually say, yeah, we think about what we've done and we do it again. Uh, so uh, before I go into the details, I think this question I, I goes, goes back to HE practice government policy. Do innovation and enterprise matter as terms? It's worth remembering that HIFE, as example, has got the word innovation in it, but is not funded from the innovation budget whatsoever. It is funded from the teaching and research budgets. It is a means to unlock the potential from teaching and research to contribute to impact. The innovation and enterprise budget is completely separate in biz. The innovation budget is for largely for businesses and users, to, for them to innovate, and the enterprise budget similarly. Uh, so what we do in Hefke is support universities to contribute knowledge, assets, skills to help users to do innovation and enterprise. It's also worth noting on that that both innovation and enterprise in the last spending review were cut significantly. I think the innovation budget was halved and certainly the enterprise budget not great. Um, enterprise particularly I think is always difficult because it's an area which free market governments do not necessarily build up investment in business support. I think innovation is considered to be nowadays underfunded and possibly, this will be controversial, higher education overfunded and research somewhere in the middle, you know, the awash with cash issue. <laughs> so I go back to the fact that, that universities, to a certain extent, in terms of higher education practice, you have to decide what terminologies you want to use and does that help? And I think you is going to talk about the reality of practice, which is, do you, are you thinking about practice and how you fit into something like how real innovation happens, like service innovation and workplaces and that, rather than just policy tags to things? Um, I will say a little bit, because we are doing a bit about innovation systems theory as a way of thinking about what they call spinover benefits, but it's a minor thing. And I would also say in terms of buzzwords, obviously at the moment productivity is the biggest thing of all, and I think growth is disappearing as an agenda, and actually what is important now of the two things are productivity, high value jobs, and spatial rebalancing. So what are we doing? Well, this is my attempt in Hefke to try and make spending review evidence sound exciting. <laughs> Didn't work terribly well once we get onto the next slides, but anyway. Uh, so four questions. I was trying to make it sound fun. The, these are the four questions that heads of policy at Hefke kind of have to answer. 
what did Knowledge Exchange ever do for us? Which is, what are the outcomes and impacts of funding? So if we fund universities and they do stuff, what, what actual ha happens? What impacts is there on the economy and society? Was it Hyfe what done it? Is the attribution question, which is very difficult in Hefke. Most of our funding is formula streams that go into a black box, which is universities, without detailed. It's not like project funding. We don't track pounds through attribution which is was it our funding that caused impacts so even if we could describe the impacts was it our funding all of hefty finds that very difficult i mean it's very difficult in qr for instance because of the dual support system i mean very difficult in something like student opportunities funding both on impact and attribution because it's our money goes in with a lot of flexibility to use it in the mix with other funding was it all worth it value for money do the inputs and the outputs balance? Are you putting a lot of money in and getting little impact back? Value for money is always important in spending reviews. And just to make it even worse, can you get in any blazing cheaper? We face massive cuts, efficiency and effectiveness. You can prove, and the simple thing is return on investment. We use, everyone knows for Hive, we say 6.3 income leverage as a proxy for impact for every pound Hive. Treasury will ask, yes, that's all very well. How are you going to increase that? So that's the kind of tough environment we face. I would say that you know, the answer is 6.3. Return on investment, I think, is going to be essential, essential in a spending review. But it is always worth knowing that there are very sophisticated people like you know, analysts and that involved in this. It is not simply a matter of making up a number. Um, there are very sophisticated arguments that are used, but but in a spending review, you need certain types of argument. So it's not that governments are you know dumb about the idea that numbers are difficult to calculate, but that they need the kind of evidence that they can process. Spending reviews are about massive billions of public money. The one thing I want to mention is always practice, important in practice. Case studies are very useful for practice and they illustrate things. They are, I think, genuinely useless in spending review evidence. They help, I think they have two things. They help people who don't know about universities understand issues. So I think case studies are very important in the music. I don't know what employability is. Explain it to me. You know, new minister, we've said they're all bankers. I don't know about this, what do you mean? Here's a case study. I think that works. I think also it can, uh, there's another reason why they're useful. Can't remember what the other one is. They explain stuff. They add to the kind of mood music that this is important. Why they're not evidence, and someone like you could tell you this better, is that they are always about outliers. They're always about the best. People don't have case studies of rubbish. Therefore, they are not the average. They are not the... <laughs> they're not the average though I mean return on investment is what is the average investment it is not what do you get is the best they are what tells you about what this money generally is about so I don't think generally in terms of the evidence we put in I mean so we use case studies but in terms of the evidence we put in I don't think case studies are particularly helpful and this is therefore what we have been doing up to now. And some of this I'm going to sub uh, summarise. We have the Hebsey survey, <coughs> which provides an invaluable source of information. It's one of the things that's been a massive advantage with Hive, is that when Hefke set up Knowledge Exchange, which is we predate, pre predates me, they set up a data collection system. And that is incredibly important, because what we do largely in Heath, 
which you've heard of in terms of the 6.3, is we say, here's HEBSI, it describes a whole world of impacts and outcomes, and then we try and attribute back to what caused that. The other way around is to take the money and try and follow the money right out into the world, and like project funders have to do, and that is incredibly difficult to do because it goes in all kinds, of, and that's the trouble with the ref impact case studies. They sh illustrate a myriad of stuff, you just can't add it up. So the advantage of HEBSI is it's designed to be added up, and then we work backwards. So HEBSI is the basis for our case, and as I said, we have, we've always tended to use the leverage, income as proxy impact, as the main method for giving spending review evidence. Then we've got these new studies. We uh, did a, we've published a study on the value of student startups, which I will refer to, but I'm not going to go into detail of all these. That, that, what we looked at was that, that we knew from the returns on information people give us on Hive that universities use Hive for things for student enterprise. And we hypothesised largely that that money was not being measured, the impacts of that were not being measured in income. Because you have to watch it, you're not double counting things. But we thought that is genuinely not being picked up in the income figures. So we, we did quite a complicated calculation and work to try and find out a proxy value for that, which was about sales turnover of student startups. We, the main thing I'm going to talk about today is the work PACC has been doing on non-monetizable non uh, benefits of Hive, effectively, which is a qualitative view, and I'll talk about that. And that included a library of case studies of direct unit of benefits. Thomas Kutz Ulrichsen has always worked with us on the quantitative side, and he's doing work in parallel with the PAC stuff with us on both using regression analysis um, and also using other quantitative met methods. I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but uh, there's one key calculation he's managed to do, which is helpful. But he's doing a lot of other work, and all this we will publish eventually. We had a, a, a round table. Madeleine Atkins is incredibly tough on, on evidence. Uh, she is believes very strongly in using, you know, academic experts like you at he, we must have the best methods. We must talk to the, you know, the people at the cutting edge. So we had a expert round table of people who are key in valuation. And I, I won't mention them all, but um, there were the people we were like Thomas Coates Ulrichs and uh, Jonathan Grant at King's College, who's doing work on the REF case studies. Steve Hannay, if anyone knows, at uh, Brunel University, who does something called the payback model, which is about health benefit um, and some other people. And then finally, we've got some work which is coming out next week on first stage with it, the Enterprise Research Centre at Warwick on uh, looking at SME demand and supply side. And then finally, we had already, we had a 2009 evaluation, which is published, it's enormous, but anyway, um, some of it, some things, we go back to that, and I think one of the key, in terms of narrowly a spending review, was key with the 2009. They tried to look at what they call the counterfactual. A counterfactual is like, can you, what would happen without the money? I mean, the, what Treasury are looking for is, it, what is absolute gold-plated proof that X cause Y. And the counterfactual is like, you know, random control trials is where you've got two examples. This one got the money, this one didn't. And did this one do better than the other kind of thing, which is quite difficult with hefty money because generally we fund most universities. Therefore, there isn't a kind of set-aside or a trial group who aren't getting the money. So, um, so the good thing with the, the 2009 evaluation is they could do a, a counterfa counterfactual analysis. They looked at, in the early periods of Hive, when it was project funding, some universities didn't get it. 
And there were also what they called weak and strong periods when there was more and less money. So what they could do is they could use kind of standard techniques to say there is a high plausibility that Haif was causing it because we can look at those who got it and those that didn't. We can't do that now, really. So that is the evidence. And as I said, I'm mainly looking at the work that PSEC's did, which was an evaluation of Haif, but not looking at the quantitative stuff. I've put, I mean, you can't read it. it the next one's clearer, but it, it doesn't particularly matter. The reason I've, I've kind of, this is one of the outputs from the work. And the reason I put it up is, um, is to show you the kind of, the layout is the methodology, as it were. So left is inputs, right is output. So it's not quantified, but it, what it does, it's laid out in a way for Treasury. It says, this is what's going in, and these are what we're illustrating coming out. And that's the essential of a value for money kind of approach to the whole thing. Um, what we don't know, I mean, obviously the problem with non-monetized stuff is the whole range of things we don't know. There are the although we can talk about how much high money goes on what on the left-hand side, we don't know how it affects each of these benefits. So you can't do a one-to-one -one calculation. Uh, other than one rather wheezy area we've done, you can't really measure the ones on the right. We're, they illustrate that there, there are these benefits, but you can't put a price on them. And therefore, you can't do an input-output. You can't do an ROI on that. Um, I think two points, though, are useful, as well as the calculation we managed to do. First of all, the bit on the left here, that bit there is worth remembering. HIFE isn't, is an input and an output. HIFE funds capability KE offices in universities here. That's an input to creating the benefit. So you put in place KE staff, develop academics to do KE. That's an input, moving to these outputs. But it's almost like a capital stock. You are creating a set of capabilities in a university to do more and more and more KE. And that is therefore an argument that if you cut it off now, most of the benefits might be 10 years down the line. So one of the arguments is you're, you're, you've in, you, O government, have invested in a stock, a capital stock of capabilities in universities that if you cut it off now, will not give you the return on investment because that would take 10 or 20 years. Secondly, I guess um, it comes to the conclusion, which is probably the main conclusion we have, that the return on investment is higher than the monetized value. So that's, uh, that's trying to blow it up, but it's, there's business benefits, social and community group benefits, and then wider economic and social benefits. And this is what we call spillover kind of benefits. And I guess two of those are innovation systems like platform technologies and local economic development. Universities being part of those creates not only direct benefits with users, but also potentially feeds into that whole system. There is a method in my madness on this one. Um, this is the work. PACC, obviously, trying to be helpful, they tried to come up with some numbers, despite the fact that none of this is very easy to put numbers onto. But they, they had a go. And one of the things they looked at was, where do universities co-invest? So lots of things universities do, they would say, well, we can't, we don't just charge people. We have to invest with them because we, you know, in treasury speak, there's a market failure. SMEs don't know what they want. We help. So the they looked at different charging policies. Now, and this Thomas, when you see the next thing, Thomas managed to came out of this, uh, an invest, uh, a, a, a non-monetized benefit. 
two um, uses of this, though. One of which is uh, obviously we can we can try and calculate what they call a shadow price benefit. Secondly, I think what's key is that if you look at this, is the only place where there is actually full cost being recovered. So we get we have had over the last year an endless cycle of moaning from industry about universities overcharging. <coughs> universities just do this to make money. It's not what the government wanted. So one of the things we obviously we can draw out of this in the case studies is that actually only in very rare cases do users pay. Universities have to co-invest. And that raises questions, obviously, about sustainability of knowledge exchange if you don't keep on investing it. Because although everyone says, oh, but it's all about the income, the income actually doesn't cover the cost. So that's actually been quite a useful point. So here we come to the numbers. What does this all mean? So we've got here the traditional leverage figure. We've got a long and short figures. Uh, this is what Thomas has calculated. Largely, this is the old leverage. And we've updated it because uh, new HEBC data. I can explain later if anyone wants why I've got two numbers, but it's all to do with the fact that the growth rates in K income have accelerated out of the recession. So the long-term value is being held down by perturbation. So if you look at the what's happening now, universities are actually getting better and better. This is the calculation we came out of the value of the students. So the, what Hyfe may have achieved in terms of the sales turnover of student startups. This is what Thomas managed to get out of the non-monetized, which is what's the value of the co-investment that universities make in knowledge exchange? It's a very simplistic calculation, which is say universities, if it's SMEs, they don't charge them all, universities put in some of the money. The tricky bit is what Thomas has to do is explain in green book terms what, what, why that has a shadow price. And he said the co-investment for the university has the same value as the investment from the user. So if you have an activity and universities put in half and the SME put in half. The SME income equals the impact, but the university bit equals the same because you're, you're kind of got a shadow price on what the SMA would have paid had it been able to afford it. So that's how that's calculated. And then we've got a library of case studies which will go alongside PAC, which talk about things where there's no transaction, like networks, and one about this question of value in excess of price so which is the kind of which is a big one i think but almost impossible to calculate with universities which is it's universities produce kind of stuff that is difficult to say now what it's valuable you know it could create all kinds of longer term effects that we don't understand so potentially i think and it was accepted that the value on the economy or society could be very much in excess of what anyone would pay but it, it's a speculative kind of uh, approach. So you end up with three... So to move on to then what we conclude... So one of the conclusions from this we draw in a spending review, because in the spending review we have to be very careful that we're not overselling what we're doing. The first thing is that we're saying the value of Hyfe is much more than the income. So the return on investment figure is only a small part of what we are illustrating potentially could be much larger. So that, that's the biggest thing we would say in a spending review to Treasury. We would say we have all this evidence. We're not saying these figures are right or wrong. We're saying it's more than 6.4. Um, I would also say in terms of the interests of SRHE, this is, this is the culmination of many, many years' work since the 2008 evaluation. We have continued to work on the qualitative insights, the quantitative methodologies. 
it's the same method we used in QR. So this is, I think, a solider figure because it's about now about seven years of work thinking qualitatively and quantitatively as to whether this approach is right. These, this one and this one, these are much earlier attempts to try and do this. So, I, you know, we can talk in more detail, but these are all about very complicated things to calculate where the whole method of calculating you know, there's the reliability of the data, there's the methodology you're using, and then there's the, you know, Thomas, who's a very good econometrician, always says never just rely on econometrics. So you should always be doing deep qualitative and evaluative work to say, to put the reality next to the numbers and say, does it stack up? So they, we would, we, you can't oversell something that can take very long time to produce. So what have we concluded from this? Well, the first one, which will make you laugh, I think, is we've got a very much more sophisticated way of saying what we don't know. <laughs> and that was the biggest. So we broke this question of like people always going on about, well, it's not just income. We've come up with three answers to that. The shadow price, where universities co-invest. So there is a, there is a transaction going on, but, you, but that per, the, per, the co-investor, the user, can't pay. So you've got this, what we call this co-investment model. Secondly, things like networks where there is no transaction, we don't have a price for that. And then finally, what's the ultimate value in the economy and society? So we've got three different areas where we don't have a measurement, but I think we've got a more sophisticated way of beginning to talk about those. And I think that helps also if we use some of the things like the shadow price, is that we have a more intelligent discussion with analysts in biz or treasury about that we're not just winging a lot of strange numbers. This is the most controversial bit. Uh, there is a belief often that the additional benefits are not aligned with the income. So particularly for universities, they often say, oh, but we don't get a lot of income, but we have other benefits. I, I, we will look carefully at what we say on this, but I don't think there is particular evidence of that. There is no reason why you can't do both, really. So at the moment, although finding additional benefits would be a good thing because we'd show that the return on investment overall was greater, there is not particularly persuasive evidence that there is some terrible skewing in the system because of that, because the income and the other benefits are probably related. The work we're doing at the moment is on, as I said, this question of where we do talk about innovation systems, where Madeleine is quite interesting, which is and her particular interest is anchors and in local economic development, but you could say the same about national innovation and things like industrial sector strategies is would you would you make would you more would you would you get more benefit from something like Heath? It not if you just looked at how universities interact with their individual partners, but how they work as part of a system with others. And this is sort of what economists would call, as I said, spillover benefits, which is it's not just the benefit you have from working with one SME in Sunderland, but what's the benefit of working as part of a system in Sunderland where the fact you work with one SME could help another SME, you could help a supply chain and that. Biggest question with all this is we will only, evidence relates to what government thinks are important. As I said, at the moment, productivity is one of their biggest challenges. So if we look at what does the evidence what's the outcome of the spending review is obviously largely determined on what a government thinks is important and particularly in areas like innovation and enterprise which are about how the economy performs they are about things that are not really in the gift of Hefke to say we are not saying to government we know better than you how you should run innovation policy and um, obviously then we will as I said I mean 
I'm, I'm monomaniac on the spending because that is what we're doing at the moment. All the work I'm describing, we will analyse, we will feed back to universities for the development of their own practice and policy. Um, I think I've probably run out of time there. Fair? Absolutely perfect. All right, well, I'll just show you. I've got two slides, which I'll just show you. I won't because these link in then well into what you uh, it's going to talk about. Because as I said, I, I don't think we're hung up about innovation particularly, but the idea of systems, which is you know, should we work? Is collaboration and alignment with others a way of getting for value for money as well as everybody plowing their own income furrow? We've Thomas has done more work on this one, which is just. A stylized view of that's a simplified view of what an innovation system looks like because you've got the stuff you know the this is all the stuff that actually universities do do um, so there's all the stuff that universities do you know to create things like capabilities in the local economy there's then the interactions that happen and then there's the kind of wider normal diffusion so if you think that's complicated that's a very stylized innovation system Thomas has got another one here Oh, there's absorptive capacity. This is several innovation systems. So this is, uh, this is you know, universities are here, but you're saying that he, multiple systems. So socioeconomic systems, which is like LEPs are doing, which is things like, you know, deprivation and things like that. You've got sectoral things like industrial sectors. You've got technologies like catapults and that. And then you've got the fact that universities are operating within a local regional system and in a national system and then in a global system. And I think, well, I mean, it's all terribly complicated. I guess the key that Thomas pulls out of this is that in either things like local economic development or national policy, there are feedbacks in these. So if you kind of go obsessive about one thing, like why don't we make Sunderland incredibly good? What are the effects of all the places around Sunderland? You know, what's the effect of London on the north? So I guess one of the things is this is a sophisticated way that universities play a part with lots of other partners. But also that for government, not for us, uh, when government are trying to create differential effects like, you know, regenerate the northwest, you've also got the problem that it's going to cause problems. It, one thing, you can't look at one thing in isolation. If you, if you massively inflate the economy of the northwest and draw assets into that, it could all come off the northeast. So all it shows is it's very complicated. And luckily that's a good handover to where Ewart will make it much more simple. That's marvellous, Alice. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating insight.